The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. And so a season comes to its close. Game six of the NBA Finals on Tuesday night. The Milwaukee Bucks win four in a row after dropping the first two to the Phoenix Suns, which, I don't know, does that, does that count as a sweep? That is not a gentleman's sweep when you lose the first two and then win four in a row after that. But here we are. The Milwaukee Bucks beat the Phoenix Suns four games in a row. Six to, or, uh, four games to two, the final tally in the series to become the NBA champions of this very weird sprint of a COVID-shortened season. And well-deserved. They did have the benefit of going through a Brooklyn Nets team that was without James Harden. And for part of the series, Kyrie Irving. That's a break, certainly. And the Suns, on the other side, had the benefit of going through a Lakers team that was without Anthony Davis and with LeBron at far less than full strength. But Chris Paul also had a shoulder stinger in that series. They got the Nuggets without Jamal Murray and without Will Barton and without, I don't know, they missed like half of their team. They got the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. And uh, we don't really know when Kawhi Leonard's going to play again. But you know what? I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, uh, huge congratulations to, to the Milwaukee Bucks, who made a proper adjustment. It took them a while in these playoffs to make that adjustment. It took them a long while. Like, it took until really the Atlanta series for the Bucks to finally switch up how they were running things on offense. And it took an injury to Giannis Antetokounmpo for Giannis himself to study the game in a way that maybe he wasn't really able to do on film or while actively playing in it. I don't know exactly what it is, but regardless, Giannis ended up having one of the most incredible series that we've seen ever. He was a wonder. He was every bit the MVP, two-time MVP, uh, that we've seen, and he, and he translated that over to the playoffs in a way that we really just hadn't seen before. He changed his attack methods. He picked his spots in a way that we hadn't seen from him in the playoffs before. Giannis deserves almost all of the credit in the world. He did get enough from Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. Drew played much better in the closeout game. Middleton was better most of this series. He had some down games, but overall he was pretty good, and that was good enough. But the Bucks utilizing a Middleton-centric offense that allowed them to get the ball to Giannis on the block moving towards the rim so that he wasn't taking it from 35 feet away with a head of steam against the defense that's already set at the edge of the paint and waiting for him. You got to get Giannis the ball in a half-court offense when the defense is moving. It took the Bucks. I really, I cannot fathom how that stuff wasn't stuff Milwaukee had come into the playoffs ready to deploy. But you know what? They got there in the nick of time, and that's good enough. Because at the end of it all, it doesn't really matter how they got to this end point. They got there. Milwaukee Bucks, two-time NBA champions. Last one was 40 years ago. 
and well-deserved. Finals MVP for Giannis. A brilliant series for Giannis, particularly uh, with Milwaukee winning, losing the first two by double digits and then winning four games in a row. That's pretty impressive stuff. That's quite a turnaround. So that's point number one on the playoffs. Point number one is is Giannis and the Bucks at large, writ large, whatever, however you want to phrase it, made the proper adjustments. That other thing, the other adjustment for Giannis, picking his spots in transition was such a big deal for him. Abandoning the three-pointer in the playoffs was a big deal. Utilizing his length, his strength in a way where not everything needed to be a dunk. A six-footer was is a reasonable facsimile to a layup for him. It's so easy because he's just so long. He goes up over centers and there's just... There's no real intimidation factor for him. So he doesn't need a dunk or a layup. He can get to within that four, five, six, seven foot range. And those are practically him dropping the ball into the hoop. Like me throwing a paper into this wastebasket to my right. That's what that is. My child is not going to stop me from getting my trash into this trash bin. That's basically what Giannis is looking at. And the difference is, at some point, the, the few adjustments that we've talked about already. Adjustment number one, getting Giannis the ball while he's already on the move so the defense isn't set in place. Guys are moving, defenses have to move around, otherwise they get called for defensive three-second violation or they leave the wrong guy wide open. That was something Milwaukee had to do, get the ball out of Giannis's hands so that they can get it back into his hands at the right moment. Giannis picking his spots in transition was also a big deal. You don't have to force every single play right to the front of the rim. That's how you get these charging fouls, and you end up with weird, uh, ill-advised shots. And then the other one that we talked about before, Giannis finally realized that he doesn't actually have to get his hand directly over the wastebasket to score. I'll continue this metaphor. If... My trash container is like four feet away from me. And the only thing separating it from me is like a pair of flannel pajama pants that I just have to flip it over. I'm still going to make most of those. Yeah, it won't be quite as high a percentage as if I was quite literally placing the paper ball in the basket. But it's going to be like 80% instead of 95 and I'm not going to, in this metaphor, accidentally bang into the basket or bang into the... The metaphor falls apart here, by the way. I'm not going to accidentally get caught up in my flannel pajama pants and trip and fall down. That's kind of what was happening in that Brooklyn Nets series. Giannis was just banging into power forwards who were set up and waiting for him. So they got him in space. They got him on the move. He realized he had more to his attack, and there was just no stopping him after that. Phoenix had no answer. And that's terrifying, by the way, for the rest of the NBA, that Giannis kind of figured it out a little bit. On the Phoenix side, a really good season comes to a close. They made it to the finals. They got to within two wins of a championship. They got extraordinarily lucky on on the way there. Both of those things can be true. They both had a great season and caught a ridiculous array of breaks on their way through the Western Conference. I don't think they get past the Lakers if Braun and AD are healthy. I don't think they get past the Clippers if Kawhi is healthy. But you know what? They weren't. And you know who was mostly healthy? Phoenix. That wasn't easy to do this year. 
great. The other team might be better if they are at full strength. Staying at full strength this season was arguably the hardest part of this season. So, yeah, the Suns deserve a lot of credit. Phoenix has had the best trainers in the NBA for a really, really long time. And they just kept it going. And then the Bucks were fortunate that Giannis is superhuman, or he probably would have missed an extra two to three weeks from his knee hyperextension, and then they wouldn't have been NBA champs. And if that was the case, in that uh, string theory universe where Giannis doesn't play in the finals and the Suns are champs, the storyline is the Suns are champs and they didn't have to go through a single superstar on their way there. Whatever. We got there. Season's over, folks. Put it in the bag. A champion was crowned. And now we turn the page towards next year. And I will reiterate before we pivot into our team du jour on this Wednesday edition of the show, which I still don't think I've introduced, I will reiterate any of these teams that went deep into the playoffs have three months to recover for next season. That's only one month more than teams had last year, and you saw what that did to these poor guys. By the way, they don't just show up on October 20th and play either. Training camp starts a month before that. So Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Giannis, Middleton, Drew, all these guys, they'll be back with their team in two months. That is a short offseason. That is a full month shorter than a standard offseason, although, again, better than last year. So, yep, we are fading the crap out of teams that went deep into the playoffs once again. It won't be quite as extreme, and there are other weird little footnotes on it, like, do the Bucks think they're going to need to play well in the regular season? Meh, probably not. They feel pretty good about themselves. It's hard to repeat. This takes a significant toll on teams. Those guys are going to get rest days by the bowl full. Suns, uh, we've already, I mean, we're a quarter day into the offseason. We've already heard rumors of where Chris Paul's going to end up next. Guys, he still has uh, another year on that bloated-ass contract, which now he's suddenly made look like a pretty reasonable one. It's a big one. So it ain't so simple, and I don't know that they want to move on from Chris Paul. Why, is, why are all the where's Chris Paul going to go rumors happening? This team just went to the finals. Phoenix needs more. Make no mistake, they need, I mean, there's not like someone they can just throw in there to guard Giannis Antetokounmpo, so it's a little silly to say that's the direct need for the Suns. They need, They well, they needed DeAndre Ayton to be this magical iteration of Ayton we saw in about half of his playoff games, and they probably need, I mean, it's really hard to, to quantify because Jay Crowder was a pretty good fit for that team. Mikel Bridges has turned into something really nice. I don't know how they get substantially better because there isn't this obvious guy they can bring in to fix this thing. Like, there isn't an obvious power forward that they could drop in there instead of Jay Crowder where suddenly they would just be the favorite to win the finals. I, like, it, it's going to take a star-level talent for me to look at that team and go, oh yeah, they just leapfrogged the Bucks, the Nets, the Lakers, the Sixers, all these teams that, that at full strength probably would have stopped the Phoenix run. Who is that power forward? I, I, I have no clue. None. Is it someone who's a brilliant defender who can space the floor like Crowder but better? Uh-huh. Is it... It's not another center because... 
you're not, I mean, even if you move DeAndre Ayton, you're not getting a guy who dramatically changes how you look on offense unless you somehow turn DeAndre Ayton into like a Carl Anthony Towns or something like that. But I don't see that happening, and I don't think that'd be much of a very good fit anyway. Uh, someone like a Bam Adebayo would actually have been a, a really good fit on that team. Who Who is this magical player that the Suns can try to go locate that changes their complexion? Is it another scoring option? Maybe. Like a Tobias Harris type that could play a stretch four? Does he actually make them better than Jay Crowder? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm at a little bit of a mental impasse with how Phoenix gets to that next rung, which at this point is, how do you... Like, if you started this next season and assume that most of the main competitors were healthy, I don't have the Suns getting to the finals again as they're currently constructed. What guy would it take on that team for me to change that feeling? John Collins is an interesting one. Don't know if they can pry him away from Atlanta. That would be, to me, a pretty damn interesting fit. We've heard Pascal Siakam is on the trade block. That would be an upgrade over a Jay Crowder. These guys that do have a bit more offensive game where you're not sacrificing a ton by bringing them in on the defensive side. But then there's a lot of names out there where it's like, well, I mean, what good really do much good? Like, what if they got slow-mo from the Grizzlies? Does that actually change much of anything? Meh. Meh. And there's a bucket of players just like that where you're like, all right, I guess. Jeremy Grant would be interesting. Don't think that... I don't see that actually happening, but he was a wonderful fit on Denver last year, so you know he could actually play around other very good basketball players. That's got to be the area that Phoenix looks at. I just don't know how they pull it off. I don't. And on the Milwaukee side, this is where you try not to rest on your laurels, and don't worry, we'll break them down on a fantasy perspective here at some point probably next week on the show. Uh, I don't know. Are we going to get there next week? Maybe. Next week or the week after. Uh... I mean, they did it without Dante DiVincenzo, so they're in full run-it-back mode, but they do have to game plan for a healthier Brooklyn Nets. And I know a lot of the dialogue right now is, okay, so let's wind back this discussion a tiny bit. First, I want to say hello to everybody. Hi, this is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball is at Hoopball Fantasy and at Hoopball Tweets. Make sure to check out the HoopBall loyalty program, friends and confidants, which basically just says if you're currently on a HoopBall membership, don't cancel it because the draft guide's coming out in less than a month and prices are going up for anyone who signs up after that marker. So if you canceled your membership already, fire it back up now before the prices go up and you can keep this first year of pricing forever you just have to leave it on that's all you have to do so if you already have one just leave it on if you had one and canceled it turn it back on you have like three weeks to do it before the price goes up uh and if you're new and thinking about jumping on some sort of membership do it before that price goes up that's the hoopball loyalty program make sure to follow at hoopball fantasy on twitter and go to hoop-ball.com to learn more also since we're not going to get to talk about NBA betting for a little bit. If you want to start betting on something else, baseball, football's right around the corner, MMA, disc league, whatever it is floating out there, let me know. I will personally open you up a MyBookie new account and make your first deposit for you. 
All you got to do is follow me on Twitter at Dan Vespers and send me a note that says, hey, Dan, I'd like to try out betting and I'll get you all set up. Yep, not promo bucks. Real cash will make that deposit for you so you can play with it. And if you win, you can cash it out. I don't care. Although I'll tell you this, if you win, you're probably going to want to keep on playing because it's fun to win money. Free cash. All right, the other thing I wanted to mention here, uh, as it pertains to sort of this who's going to win the finals next year discussion that folks are having already, is, yeah, Brooklyn probably does come into the season the favorites. Because by all accounts, Harden will be ready to go. KD was playing at the end of all the guys to actually make it through the the playoffs. And then Kyrie will be ready to go as well. Here's the thing. Uh, James Harden was hyper durable for like a decade, but he actually hasn't been the last couple of seasons. Kyrie Irving has never been, and he actually just took some games off this last year, kind of floating in and, uh, in and away from the team at times because, and he's come out and say it uh, himself, there are things in his life he feels are more important than basketball. Okay, that's fine. I mean, there are things in my life that I feel are more important than my job also. Uh, but however you sum it all up, whatever you think about that, uh, the, the, the net total of all of this is that Kevin Durant played about half the season. Harden played about 60-some-odd percent of the season. Kyrie Irving played about 70% of the season, 75. And assuming those guys are going to make it through a year healthy is actually a little bit foolish. So yeah, Brooklyn's the favorite, but you could not get me to bet on that in a million years because I just don't trust that those guys are going to make it through. I've seen nothing over the last couple of seasons to to look at them and say, yeah, all three of these guys are going to be healthy come playoff time or all three of them are going to make it through a postseason run. Maybe they only need two of the three to make it to an NBA Finals, but you probably need all three to win the NBA Finals. How good did Durant look, by the way? And don't worry, we'll break down Brooklyn on the fantasy perspective uh, in probably about two weeks from now, give or take. When we get uh, official odds on next year, we'll go through all of that stuff. I also, on the other side of it, it's important to note that people keep saying, well, Brooklyn would have beat Milwaukee if they were healthy. For the reasons we just outlined, that's a big if. And same story in the Western Conference. Anthony Davis being healthy, kind of a big if, particularly this year. He played through a lot of stuff last season. This season, he was just too battered and bruised. Kawhi, that's a pretty big if. You take a chance at times. There are a lot of superstars out there that are uh, not exactly known for making it through an entire NBA campaign. It's going to be weird not to talk about actual basketball happening for a little bit here. So we're, we're in it now. Start the three-month countdown to next season. Start the, like, month-and-a-half countdown to draft season. And start the, like, 12-day countdown to free agency, which is going to be fun, like usual. Can't wait to break all that stuff down. Down. Okay. Transitioning now back into the fantasy portion of the proceedings, which I think still is probably the reason most of you guys are here. And we continue our journey through the Southeast Conference. And again, there's no real specific order to any of this stuff, but we did Miami on yesterday's show, so you know what the hell, we'll just stay in Florida 
and visit the Orlando Magic, who saw their fantasy team change pretty considerably. I guess that's the real team, too. Uh, during yesterday, or this most recent season, not yesterday, yesterday we talked about the Heat. The Magic blew it all up. By land or by sea, by injury, by trade, they blew it all up. And there was basically no one left at the end of the season recognizable on this team that was there at the beginning of the year. At the beginning of the year, there was Vooch, there was Aaron Gordon, there was a healthy Terrence Ross, there was a healthy Markel Fultz, there was Evan Fournier. Not one of those guys actually finished the season out. For the Magic. Markel Fultz was injured in a big way. Tore his ACL uh, in January. So he most likely won't be back to start this coming season. And I wasn't going to advocate drafting him anyway. Because I think his fantasy stat set is dramatically overrated. He was number 250 in 9-cat in the 8 games he played before the injury. Now if we adjust for the fact that in the injury game, his minutes were much lower, and so that bulled all of his percentages down a little bit. He still wasn't close. He still was starter's minutes outside the top 200 because he wasn't scoring very much. He wasn't shooting very well. He did manage to fix his free throw stroke, which was phase one of the Markel Fultz improvement plan, but he also needed to get more steals, which perhaps, I mean, I guess we can assume, we can probably assume that's a number that would come up over normal starters minutes because last year he played in all 72 games and had 1.3 steals in about 28 minutes per ball game. The fact that that dropped to about 0.9 or 1 this season with the minutes not changing much, I don't think we can put a whole lot of stock into that. So just assume, let's assume for argument's sake that the steals for faults are fine. Not blow you away good, but fine. Low ones, 1.3 Maybe he gets to 1.4 and you start to call it a a kind of a a good thing, but I don't think that we can guarantee that. Assists, when he comes back and works his way back into whatever, it's probably going to be in the 6 range. Scoring, yeah, that load will probably go up. But here's the thing. None of this really matters when you consider the fact that there's no chance he's good to go full steam on opening day this coming year. If he's playing on opening day, nine months after tearing his ACL, it'll be a freaking miracle, and it certainly won't be an everyday kind of thing. So you're looking at a guy who's going to get games off. Maybe in the second half of the season, he, he becomes a marginally useful fantasy player, but I don't think that there's nearly enough reason to take the plunge on Markel, given what we know about his fantasy stat set. It's just not as good as the world would have us believe. If his free throw percent really has gotten better and his field goal percent goes back to being meh instead of terrible, then you're just talking about someone who doesn't rebound, doesn't score that much, and doesn't shoot the three ball. The scoring could get better if he gets the reins, which when he's healthy, he's going to have a lot of the reins. So he profiles as someone you could, if you had a bunch of injured slots in a points league, that's probably the direction you're looking on Markel Fultz. I bring him up because he's basically their most expensive player. Not entirely. We'll, we'll go through this thing piece by piece be, because the Magic are such a weird thing. 
The most expensive player on the Magic actually comes off the books. That was Otto Porter, who made $28.5 million last year. That's no longer a thing. So the Magic payroll drops down right around the $100 million mark if the team exercises their option on Wendell Carter Jr., which I would assume they do. So beyond Markel Fultz, let's take a look at what's going on in this team, generally by position. Cole Anthony profiles as the starting point guard as long as Markel Fultz is out. That stares right down the barrel of a potential timeshare. And if either one of those guys gets moved off ball, they lose their only real ticket to fantasy upside. Cole Anthony's fantasy upside was tied up heavily in scoring assists and three-pointers. If you take the assists away, bye-bye. And he wasn't very good from a fantasy standpoint either, but for points leagues, again, very late in the season. All these guys have these giant, giant issues. Uh, down the stretch, Cole Anthony was basically the, the starting guy on this team. and He averaged 16, 5, and 4, but no real defensive stats, bad field goal percent, not enough three-pointers to make a dent. He's a long way from being fantasy relevant. The guys down the stretch for the Orlando Magic, and I keep bouncing back and forth between wanting to do this by position and wanting to do it by name on a board, the guys that had fantasy value down the stretch were Mo Bamba, who jumped Wendell Carter Jr. for the starting center spot and showed himself, honestly, this is a guy I think we loop back around to on this podcast. Mo Bamba has, I would argue, the best fantasy stat set of anybody on the Magic right now. I actually don't think it's all that close, because the only other guy on the Magic who had fantasy value down the stretch was Chuma Okiki before he got hurt and sat out the last three weeks of the season. But he was playing an extra six minutes a game over Bamba to get to the same fantasy threshold. Over the team's last three weeks of basketball, eh, call it four, Okiki played about a week and a half of that four. Bamba played most of it. He'll get his games off here and there because his body just won't handle it. Those two guys were both inside the top 65 on a per-game basis, and no one else on the whole damn team was inside the top 180. The guy who was sitting at 180 was Mo Wagner, who picked up a whole boatload of minutes when everybody else was sitting out ballgames. Things got real bleeping weird in Orlando down the stretch. So it's almost... And, like, if you look at their most recent games, if you looked at the each player's most recent 10 games or whatever that comes out to, it's a little bit deceiving because, for instance, a lot of the R.J. Hampton games came when Okiki, Ross, Fultz, uh, Michael Carter-Williams, all those guys were basically out when Hampton started to make some noise for himself right at the very tail end of the season. So it's actually probably more uh, instructive to, if you're going to look at how the Magic did towards the end of this year, I think it's more instructive to look at a date range. And I would put that date range as basically the last two months of the regular season. Team had about 30 games over that stretch. Okiki played in 22 of them. He was inside the top 100. Bamba played in 26 of them. He was at 123 in 20 minutes of ballgame, and he was actually ramping up as the season went on. Wendell Carter Jr. played in 28 of their games. He was outside the top 160. 
and then no one else was even within striking distance of fantasy value over that stretch. If you slowly bring that barricade down and you look at, say, April 16th to May 16th, the very last month of the season, Magic had, I think, 16 games over that stretch, Bamba and Okiki were, this is where they separated themselves, the only players on the team with useful fantasy value. If you now go to the very end of the regular season and just look at May, the last two and change weeks, it was Bamba and then sort of Mo Wagner and RJ Hampton were right on the cusp, but a lot of these guys weren't playing. Cole Anthony was in there, but he was dragging you down with turnovers and lack of steals and field goal percent issues and not enough assists. Hampton had some assists. He was going straight popcorn style. Horrible percentages in both, really, 45 and 67 respectively. No real defensive stats to speak of and screaming points league type of guy. Wagner got nine shots a game over that stretch, which was like basically a career high for him and averaged 13 and five, but no real defensive stats, good free throw shooting. And if you could have gotten him to one block a game, he probably would have been inside the top 100, but no. So over that last two and a half weeks, it was just Mo Bamba. He played 25 minutes a game, averaged 11 and 10 with two blocks a night. And this was with an exceptionally low field goal percent run, which would likely level off if you gave him a longer stretch. Because Bamba's not a 40% shooter from the field. He's not great. He's not going to shoot 52%, but he's 47 for his career. More like 46 or 47-ish since he's been taking more three-pointers. Whatever, that sort of is what it is, but not 40. Over that stretch we were talking about, their last two and a half weeks, he shot 40%, 41, and was top, and was number 84 So if you adjust that up to 46%, his scoring goes up from 11 to probably 12 or 13, and the field goal percent is no longer a negative, and you're talking about a top 60 kind of guy. Where does this all put us going forward? Because what I've told you right now is that there really are only two category league guys on this whole damn Magic roster. Okiki, you turned his ankle and they were just like, screw it, we don't need to play this dude. And Mobamba, who's never been healthy for more than three weeks in a row. But Bamba's still only 23. Okiki was their prized rookie this year. He was just drafted out of Auburn. And seemingly getting better as the season went on. Seemingly very good defensively, which gives him that little lift. He actually, in his final two, three weeks of basketball, Okiki was averaging over two steals a game. And I would argue that his percentages probably improve season over season. That's just something that guys get slowly better at, especially when you're talking about a dude who isn't a primary ball handler. Him shooting 41.5% just means he wasn't getting looks. He wasn't getting good looks, and he was adjusting to game speed. I don't think that guy, I don't think Okiki, who's uh, 6'6", 230 and a power forward, I don't think that guy's shooting 42% for a career. Does it make a forward leap in year two? I'm willing to bet that it does a little bit. I don't know exactly how much, but he was already... He was already a fantasy asset while posting terrible percentages because his steals were good, because he can hit the three ball. 
wasn't rebounding, I think, as much as I'd like to see from a power forward, and that's not going to get any easier for him for reasons we'll get to here in just a moment. So, Kiki, Bamba, put them on your list. Wendell Carter Jr., I just don't think he's a fantasy player at this point. I think we've sort of moved past it. Which does also make me wonder, do the Magic even exercise his player option? I think they probably do, just because it's not terribly expensive at just only at, at only $7 million. And at least at that point, they can kind of see what they've got. Big question marks going into next year that will trickle down and impact pretty much everyone else on the roster. Jonathan Isaac, who uh, got hurt in the bubble last year, so he's about a year removed from his massive injury stuff. How does he look going into next season? I truly don't know. Uh, I have him as a keeper in some in, in a roto league with a games cap, and with that, I feel pretty good about it. They gave him a big extension, so they're really excited about him. If you're in a head-to-head league, I, I, don't, I don't feel at all comfortable drafting Isaac. I don't think he plays in any of their back-to-backs as this team goes into a super youth rebuild type of situation. There's no reason to stress him. I don't think he plays a full complement of minutes probably until December, Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe they get it to him at some point in November. But you're looking at a slow start and missed ball games, and that's a tough pill to swallow if you're not in a games cap format. Games cap format, I think it'll be okay, because he's so good at doing stuff when he's on the floor that you just give him like part of a ball game and you're in good shape. But him playing means there's your power forward. That would slide Chuma down to small forward. How does that change his potential stats at it also pushes a host of players into the small forward shooting guard bucket and I don't know how they find minutes for many or any of these guys Terrence Ross is still a magic they're going to be trying to move him every second of every game of every day this coming year and by the way, he has two years left on his deal, but he's fairly affordable at this point as a bench gunner. 12.5 mil this season, 11.5 next year. When I say this season, I mean this coming season, 11.5 in 2022. So he's going to be playing something at small forward or shooting guard. James Ennis is off the book, so I guess we don't have to worry about that anymore. But Cole Anthony, where do you slot him in? Uh, if, is he your, if he's your starting point guard while they wait on Markel Fultz, where does that slot R.J. Hampton into the mix? Is Michael Carter-Williams still going to get to play? Are they going to guarantee Dwayne Bacon's contract and let him get out there and play a little bit? There's a lot hanging in the balance. And from a fantasy standpoint, a lot of guys that needed maximum playing time and maximum usage just to get near fantasy value. So let's just lay it all out there. Jonathan Isaac is probably going to get overdrafted based on how good he is when healthy, but he's probably not coming into the season fully healthy, and they're also going to kid-glove him, which to me makes him a guy you pretty much dodge in head-to-head. And in Roto, games cap format, Assume he's probably going to play about 62 of the 82 games this coming year. And if you get more than that, fantastic. If you look back at two years ago, Isaac was a top 20 fantasy player in 29 minutes a game. 12.7 boards, 
Four combined defensive stats. Wow. A three-pointer, 47% from the field, 78% at the free throw line. His offensive role will increase with no Vooch, no Fournier, no Aaron Gordon, and Fultz out for part of the season. Then Terrence Ross, we don't really know what he's going to be doing. So Jonathan Isaac could actually be even better than that when he's on the court, but the big when he's on the court thing is looming over everybody. And you guys know how I feel about taking shots early in drafts. You might be able to get Jonathan Isaac at like pick 30 or 35 or 40 in this coming fantasy draft. If he falls into the fourth round, you probably have to do it. I don't think I can advocate taking him in the third because of the injury stuff. He could be amazing for 30 games, but that might be all you get. You just don't know. It's too big of a swing to take that early in a fantasy draft. It's someone that could completely derail your team. Fourth, fifth round, it's a little bit different. Your shot of getting a first round value in the fourth, fifth round is so low, you might as well take a shot on someone who might get you second round per game stuff. Third round, we saw it this year. There were like three third rounders who ended up in the first round. Vooch, Gobert, and Chris Paul. So why risk it on someone you know isn't going to be playing more than 80% of his team's games? It's just not going to happen. And I love Jonathan Isaac. He's the tailor-made hoop ball kind of guy, but he's not going to be fully healthy, and he's on a team that's going to be tanking. Maybe not at the beginning of the year, but they will at some point. Okiki, on the other hand, I actually feel uh, fairly optimistic about. I don't think folks saw that he looked pretty good those, like, four weeks between the All-Star break and when he turned an ankle and they shut him down. But he did. He looked really good, and I think if he gets even, like, one or two clicks better which field goal percent, free throw percent, if those both improve a little bit and he can keep the steals nice and high, he should hang out inside the top 100. Top 60, maybe a bit of a stretch. We'll have to see where he gets drafted, but I'd be pretty surprised if he went uh, earlier than the seventh round. So if you're getting him in the 80s, end of the seventh round, somewhere in the eighth round, I feel pretty good about that pick. He's going to play a lot this coming season. He's part of their youth movement. He'll play a bunch. The, the questions we have to ask that I, I lean towards saying yes as the answer to are, uh, one, is he going to get enough shots? I lean to yes. Two, is he going to get a little bit better? I lean to yes. Will he be able to keep the steals pretty high? I lean sort of to the yes. Terrence Ross, he's someone that I've often targeted in uh, late in head-to-head drafts. Not this year. He, he'll be on the move somewhere where his role is going to be extremely small. Even if he gets a bunch of shots early this season, doesn't mean anything to me. Also, Gary Harris is on this team. He'll be a trade chip all season long. $20 million expiring contract. That's basically an asset with all by itself. So they'll end up with a second rounder for Gary Harris at some point this year. You can bet it, which means they're probably not going to risk hurting him. So that's another guy who's going to play 20 minutes a night, try to stay healthy, and just cut into someone else's opportunity to maybe get close to fantasy numbers. The only question I think we've left unanswered, and I'm circling around Mo Bamba a little bit here, uh, is Mo. So quickly here, I'm going to lightning round my thoughts on everybody else on the team that we've just gone over uh, over the last 20 minutes or so. Gary Harris, no. Terrence Ross, no. Fultz, no. Jonathan Isaac, no. Forty or later in a roto games cap and head to head, no. Wendell Carter Jr., no. Cole Anthony, probably not. Yeah, we'll go no. 
RJ Hampton. Cole Anthony, RJ Hampton, you could give a look at after 100 in points leagues. That's that's where I stand with those guys. Category leagues, no. Chumo Kiki, uh, outside the top 75 in category leagues, I feel okay about that. Dwayne Bacon, no. Uh, and that leaves us on just Mo Bamba. He's the only guy we've talked about already, but haven't really localized, haven't been able to really hone in on where he ought to go from a fantasy standpoint. There's a lot to like about Bamba. His fantasy game is robust. I mean, truly robust. He was inside the top 214 minutes a game, and his per 36s are insane. Unfortunately, his ability to stay on the floor is also completely insane. He's played in three NBA seasons. He's missed 25, 10, and 26 ballgames. That's not a great look for someone who still hasn't really had to put starters minutes on his body. He's still quite young, 7-foot, 230-pounder. He's, uh, what, turned 23, I think, two months ago. So he's still a pretty young guy. And sometimes guys grow into their bodies where then maybe they don't get hurt quite as often. I can't in good faith tell you that I think that's going to happen with Bamba. I think he's going to miss games. That's just who he is at this point. But because Wendell Carter Jr. is effectively the only other center on the roster— and they could try to go with a small ball Jonathan Isaac at center lineup. I don't think they want to because Isaac himself is extraordinarily brittle and they don't want him getting beat up. So it's got to be Carter Jr. and it's got to be Bamba in the middle. Wagner, by the way, is off the books. That was the only other center floating around this last year towards the end of the season. That means Bamba's getting 24 minutes a game. That's a timeshare at the very worst for Mo, because he looked better than Wendell Carter Jr. at the end of the season. He looked like a better all-around basketball player in the modern NBA, someone that can finish, block shots, and shoot the three. That's what teams want out of their big man now. Wendell Carter Jr. can finish, doesn't block very much, fouls a bunch, rebounds maybe a little better than Bamba, do, uh, cannot at all shoot the three ball, and constantly finds himself in the wrong spot on defense. That's not a great look. And as we just mentioned before, in half a ball game, in 24 minutes, Mobamba was inside the top 70. And I have no reason to believe that's not where half a game puts him again. I would look at Mobamba in, in the eighth round if I could get him there. I think that'd be a really nice steal to get him in the 80s or 90s. I don't think you can wait past 100. I think he'll be drafted before that because he's one of those rare guys with the massive per 36s. But let's wait and see. Maybe his ADP stinks. And when I say stinks, I mean maybe people are taking him at like 55, expecting him to play 30 minutes a night, which he's not gonna. Or maybe his ADP's awesome and he's going at like 115 where we can grab him at 95 and feel fine about the fact that we can basically game plan to get him at the end of the eighth, beginning of the ninth round without much competition. Unless you're in a league with other hoop ballers, which, as I've said before, we should probably try to diversify our portfolio. And that, ladies and germs, is your Orlando Magic. So once again, a big, fat, healthy congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks, your 2020-2021 NBA champs. And it is now officially not just fantasy offseason, but all off-season time. NBA draft around the corner, free agency not far after that. 
Uh, have a lovely rest of your Wednesday, everyone. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Thursday, we'll continue our journey through the Southeast Division. I'm Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. So long. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.